Kia ora koutou katoa and welcome everyone to uh, this week's version of The Hoon. I'm Bernard Hickey and uh, on the line uh, we have Peter Bale. G'day Peter. On the line, yes, yes, on the, on the, on the party line from, uh, fr- from my rural estate, yeah. Yeah, come ah. in, come in, come in, Waiuku 3-4. Ah, right. Wow. Yeah. Good to, good to yeah, see no, you. No, I'm not. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm still on the party, party line in Hearn Bay. Fantastic. Great to see you there. Yeah. And a, a very eventful week all over the world. Now, um, special guest, Professor Robert Patman, will be with us from 4.35 to talk about all the drama going on in the rest of the world and how it's affecting us and why it matters. But... Um, First, Peter, I thought I'd tell everyone about yeah, my special yeah, trip today. Let's, yeah, so Bernard, I, I hear you've taken a special trip today to see to see some of the most important people in the New Zealand government. And you went, and the amazing thing is, you could go to Porirua. That's right. I went to, to Porirua, where it was now, all happening today. I reckon, Bernard. So I, I think you need to tell us quite a lot in this section about what I think is one of the most interesting, controversial, and potentially divisive government uh, policies which changed rather dramatically today. So tell us why you went to Porirua, Bernard. Yeah, well, this was the announcement of the government's final three waters position. So you might recall over the last couple of months, they've been doing uh, yet another consultation with the uh, councils about the structure of the four new water authorities the government Mm. wants to ram through. Remember, councils um, don't like this idea. In particular, they don't like the idea of co-governance which has never really been explained to everyone um, what it actually means. Uh, We discovered today that all along the government was planning to have these very high-level regional representative groups, which would be um, Mm. equal uh, uh, councils and local iwi, and then underneath that would be completely separate boards for each of the for water authorities, which would be made up of water engineers and executives and uh, all of the normal people you'd expect, I suppose, on a normal water authority. And um, I went out there to hear the announcement from Nanaya Mahuta. Just, 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 just before you go into the announcement, though, Bernard, what, what everybody had been expecting that this, I mean, the, the controversial aspect here, isn't it, is that there's this idea about that it's been proposed that EWI would have uh, effectively 50% control of, of the three waters operations and that this somehow represented a, a theft or a, a shift in, in, in the control of locally count, local council assets that was somehow both unconstitutional and unethical and conceivably even racist. Is that, that's been the line, but they changed that quite dramatically, right? Yeah, not, not, they didn't change it. Um, they they yeah. would argue that um, they haven't changed their views all along, but what they've done is point out that the structure of the proposal... Uh, included co-governance at a very high level in which mm. that those boards, which include councils and iwi, do not actually control the assets. The assets are controlled by a board that it's a lower level. And those boards uh, would... Sorry, this is in the new arrangement? This is in the arrangement that was revealed today? Well, the, 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 government, the government has said yeah. that this has been the way that it's been all along, and we've just yeah. you know, made clear... We've just been misunderstanding. That, yes, that's right. So um, and I think there's an element of um, uh, mischief-making by some people uh, mm. out there who've chosen oh, yes. to um, throw up co-governance as... This is the real reason Free Waters is going ahead. That's a great. Are we talking plot. about the man in short trousers, Mr. Mischief, David Seymour? Yeah, and there's been lots of other people as well, mm-hmm. and many people in the groundswell movement um, and more who saw Three Waters as a secret takeover by Iwi, fostered by the government and Anaya mm-hmm. Mahuta, which I think is just not true because when you actually look at the structure of the vehicles that are being created. And I think the real reason for the creation of Three Waters, under this um, new structure, Standard & Poor's will have a lot more influence and control over these structures than any, than any, will. any, any will. Yeah, there's another... So, so Bernard, what... To, do, do people... So, mischief makers have said this was going to involve the transfer of um, capital assets from uh, local councils... Um, dominated by, you know, Pākehā society to some extent. They've used that as a mischief-making to attack the whole idea of co- co-governance. 
what is the new proposal? Just just literally tell us what, what we heard today, because I, I was quite impressed by how much it must have or should have spiked the guns of those mischief makers. Yeah, so um, there was this uh, consultation progress uh, pr- uh, process by a working group in which they spelled out exactly what the co-governance model would mean, mm. that there would be regional representative groups which would where the co-governance would sit, but under that would be the boards of the actual entities, and that uh, the ownership structure was sort of um, tied down completely so that uh, every council uh, would have one vote for every 50,000 uh, members mm-hmm. uh, in that water authority. And also, what the one new thing that's come out today is that the government wants to include in legislation a very unusual measure that any move to privatise... Yes, this is... Yep, please yeah. continue. Yep, yeah, yep. any move to privatise these vehicles would need a 75% vote in Parliament which uh, uh, is very hardcore because... But I think that's a rather... Isn't, so just, just you know, as somebody who lives in England normally and has gone through the privatisation of the water, water companies and has watched the water companies draw unbelievably big dividends uh, and still put tremendous amounts of what we can only describe on this podcast as shit into the waterways of, of the UK... Um, that privatization or the anti-privatization kind of poison pill that sits under three waters is to me much, much more important than people have fully realized and is actually one of the key subtexts for doing it. Is that is that a fair call? Uh, but they don't want to they don't want to do what John Key did with power. Yeah, but to be fair to national, they've never proposed that they would privatize to what? those. To be fair to national, <laughs> they've never said that they would privatise those assets. And I don't think politically uh, it's anywhere they'd want to go now. Um, I think national went as far as it possibly could by privatising 49% of the power companies, and that mm-hmm. hasn't gone well from a consumer point of view. So um, I, I don't think there was such an immediate political risk. But long term, you're right, there could be some mad libertarian who gets in there and decides Oh, to, Christ, we're talking about David, David uh, Seymour again. No, no, no. Mad libertarian in short pants. A- angry is one way to yeah. describe it. No, um, I, 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 quite, I quite like David Seymour. Yeah, he no, really me cares, too. cares about yeah. um, the... Uh, Himself. The, he really cares about uh, David Seymour, does. Yeah, no, no, no. He's got some big ideas, and he um, thinks a lot about policy and stuff. But, big ideas in a small package, yeah. Uh, um, so but, so, so, so we, we've got the privatisation. I think the, the other aspect of privatisation, if I may just, just chip this in, because I, I think even you might be underestimating this, is that if we regard water as a national asset and as part of the taonga, in fact, of New Zealand, then that is also a very important aspect of having iwi deeply involved in it, particularly in the possibility of it being privatised to anybody else. So it isn't about transfer, transfer, transferring uh, ownership from Pakeha to iwi. It's about giving iwi a uh stake so that it doesn't get sold to bloody edf and thames water surely yep and that's one of the reasons iwi was so keen or macquarie or macquarie exactly yeah um, because these are the perfect assets for private equity to get hands on they are guaranteed revenues you're loaded up with debt and then you make out like a bandit as the equity rises and we've seen that with many of the electricity lines companies mm. um, which were sold off before eventually Everyone realised um, the game was up and stopped them. Uh, meanwhile, though, uh, Taranaki, uh, you could argue Auckland through Vector, and certainly the Wellington Lines Company have gone, and the amount of profit that's gone overseas from that exactly, right? Exactly. I think there's. I, I, I think Bernard, there's a. It would be really good actually if there were if you weren't the only journalist looking at this aspect of it about. The, the, the shielding, in a sense, from those private equity companies, which I do believe every New Zealander has a stake in, doesn't necessarily mean that nationalised companies work any better. But is it also, I mean, moving on from that one, perhaps? Now, Bernard, so so what about this quality issue? Um, I, I was defaming Damien Grant from the Taxpayers Union or whatever it is that he's from, but he, he pointed out that perhaps this figure of 35,000 people a year being, um, you know, ha- having to consume bad water was not necessarily correct. Um, but, it, you know, is there any guarantee in here that we're going to get better quality water? Uh, there is a new water authority which will mm. be measuring water quality in a way that hasn't been done so far. We've got this horrible situation at the moment where 
many of the authorities, so the regional councils which are there responsible for checking water quality, are also the ones who own the water authorities. Yeah. And so they'd essentially have to uh, uh, prosecute themselves <coughs> if they were serious about it. So at least this way it separates it from a new national water authority which has already been set up. And uh, that's, that's a good thing. And there are real water quality problems. We have, yeah. a, frankly, a, a disaster, particularly in cities. I mean, you mm. live in Auckland. I now will not, I will not swim at Takapuna Beach I, because I know now whenever there's a bit of rain, all the pipes are intermingled mm. when there's too much mm. rain and the poo goes out into Takapuna Bay. Well, there is an app which is called Safe Swim. So you can, you can it, and, and, you know, some other poor bugger goes out and detects whether there's poo in the water. I use that for swimming in Hearn Bay. You're absolutely right. But, you know, that, that incompetence in Wellington of that, was it a year that they weren't running fluoride? Exactly. And don't get me started on Christchurch. I mean, nobody cares what happens in Christchurch. But, exactly. You know, and it's, I, I blame um, my teeth on the fluoride problem. <laughs> well, yeah, um, yeah, exactly. And, and that is, um, you know, there's, and there's big problems too in the way that water is managed in the regional areas, particularly mm. those new con newly converted dairy areas where you've got uh, essentially um, too much. You mean, do you, mean, you mean the Fonterra desertification program? Desertification. Well, there's a lot yeah. of water suddenly around there. Um, and certainly um, there is a problem now with uh, too much nitrate in the waters. And, and um, that is something hopefully these water authorities can get on top of. The real issue, but the real issue is in the cities where um, we haven't spent the money not just on stormwater, but on drinking water and wastewater um, so that uh, increasingly... It's the pinch point in any attempts to get extra housing mm. into the market. And ah, so you did flick to the Being the Housing podcast again. <laughs> There's my great segue to housing. I'll mm. always get there in the end, Peter. But, but, Bernard, there was another thing that, you know, it, it, the groundswell people have talked about and which and which seem to, um, Jesus, somebody's calling me a smart ass on this thing. How dare they? Well, that's, that's, that's Gary from Christchurch, so that's fair enough. Yeah, but I, I, I was born in Christchurch, so I'm allowed to be a smart ass about Christchurch. Uh, um, but... Um, the issue of is it called pugging when when there was something in there as well about when when the when which pugging is it is pugging right it's quite this a nice is, yeah, word this is with the the, the dairy cows i are, feel quite puggy sometimes <laughs> but but pugging is when the dairy cows yeah. um it's when, you, yeah, you get, it's, it's when you look puggy that's hmm. a particular problem oh good yeah so when which i'm not saying you you, you are peter but if you're a paddock in the middle of winter with 300 cows on it and they're stuck there for too long Essentially, it wrecks the um, the ground, and of course, they all poo and and pee and this stuff, mm. and it's a complete mess. Apart from anything else, an animal, animal welfare issue, but of course, that it really um, quickly runs off into the waterways, and is um, a, a problem which the government really hasn't been able to get on top of. In fact, there was an announcement yesterday in which they again um, pushed. They don't really want to get onto the problem to, to some extent, do they? Because they don't want to be interfering with individual farmers' rights to fuck up their own land, right? Well, yeah, but in the process, they're also poisoning the waterways. And, exactly. Um, and this is where, you know, having some control and some um, some real policing of this by... Yeah, but, but Bernard, you know, once bodies. they take the utes, then they'll take the water, then they'll take the farms and give it to the, ah, to, yes. give it to the Pope. Oh, I'm sorry, that's a different yeah, the conspiracy Pope, theory. Oh, no, no. Yeah, um, yeah. No, this is, this is a real uh, concern of many people in rural New Zealand. I think it's overplayed, and I think there is a real social license problem that rural mm -hmm. New Zealand has with uh, urban voters. And remember, there'll always be more urban voters than provincial voters. Mm. And uh, although the real problems on water quality are actually in the cities. And well, that's enough, true, yeah. yeah. It's right. it's just, just addressing what somebody said here about poo in the city's central beaches. So I'm glad we've moved from discussing gin from time to time to discussing poo in the city's central beaches. The, um, as you're aware, Auckland is try trying to separate um, stormwater from, from other forms of sewage. And uh, I was really struck by, just, just up from me, a, a proposed development of, I think, 60 flats was turned down because some you know, local NIMBY in Hearn Bay managed to persuade them that the sewage inter interchange couldn't handle the outflow from 68 flats. So it's going to be a countdown instead, whereas, in fact, what Auckland needs is 68 flats for rich people on Jervois Road. Yes. I mean, I certainly need that. Thank yes, you. yes. No, I'd quite like one of those myself. No, but just going back to pugging for a minute. That is a yeah. really good example of how a lack of investment in water, water infrastructure 
restricts our ability to grow our housing supply. Exactly, which is another another one of your theft theft from future generations, yeah, which yeah, you, exactly, which you've been exactly. very opposite about, Bernard. But yeah, just yeah. going back to pugging for a minute, and I, and I yeah. believe we have not that we ever repeat ourselves on this podcast, but it, it's evident to me from traveling around the country and you know driving down the road and um, deciding that I understand a place completely, uh, having you know spent five minutes driving through it. But the uh, amount of investment that's gone in on privately owned farmland, presumably with some subsidies to protect watercourses, fencing them off and uh, putting a lot of reeds and things into them and facts and so on, is incredible. And they look magnificent. And I'm sure it's, you know, good for the animals, good for the good for the pugging. Um, you know, I, I used to I used to go on somebody's farm where uh, I, I, one of my jobs for a while was re- retrieving lambs from who'd fallen into tomos, Yikes. underground waterways, and alive. You know, uh, well, sometimes they were alive, sometimes they were dead. Oh, dear. And you wouldn't want them to die in there and pollute the waterways. Yeah. That, well, well, you didn't give a you didn't care then. You just no. you know stuck a couple of liters of petrol down and set fire to it. But yeah, you know, no, but I didn't. By no, the way, good. You're, yeah. you're absolutely right that there has been a lot of investment in uh, what they call riparian um, uh, waterways. Yeah. So this is where you plant a bunch of trees along the waterway, you fence it off, and you you get a proper gap between the paddock where the cows are doing their thing and the uh, stream or river or ditch or whatever it is. Uh, and the dairy farmers have done pretty well at, at uh, fixing that. But the presumably beef, that, have been, that's, that has been done also through subsidies, right? That's been, they've, you know, the government has supported them to do that. Not that much. Um, but you could argue in the long run that the dairy farmers are partially subsidised because of Fonterra's monopoly, which, by the way, was effectively renewed again um, this, this week. Mm. And, and the farmers knew that they had to do it to sort of win back some social licence. The problem with riparian planting is that it doesn't solve the underlying problem of nitrates leaching through yeah. the ground into the waterways Thanks, over a period yeah. of decades. So um, that is, um, that's not going to solve the, the problems there. And we have water problems all around the country. It's not just... Yeah, so there. just so coming away from your, your exciting trip to Porirua today... Yes. Do you come back from that more confident that Three Waters was is both valuable and 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 is is sensibly targeted and that it will pass or what? I think this is a mistake by the government politically uh, not to essentially give up on it and try something else mm-hmm. because it has become a lightning rod for. Um, you know the sorts of uh, complaints that you talked about against co-governance uh, complaints. But by but haven't they haven't they stymied the lightning rod? Haven't they stymied or, or diverted that lightning? No, because the co-governance is still there at a higher level, mm-hmm. and because the councils, in particular, about half of the country's population are in councils that vehemently oppose it. In fact, three of three of the councils are taking the government to court mm. on this. What the government needed was to effectively uh, pitch this as uh, a, an infrastructure uh, funding solution and not wrap in the co-governance. Politically, okay. r- rightly but or have wrongly... But have a look at what Alistair Sean has just said, Bernard, because that's my understanding as well, is that the, the, the co-governance is there more as a supervisory yeah. element, recognising Iwi's legitimate and special relationship to, to the mana whenua. Yeah, and that was always going to be the case. It was Could you just say, I actually said mana whenua out loud? No, yeah, no, it's good. Yeah. Uh, and, and Alistair is exactly right. And people should know that it's Standard & Poor's who have more control over this process than the iwi do. And do you want to explain why that is so? Yeah. So the real reason for Three Waters, in my view, in fact, and restated again by Grant Robertson and Anai Mahush today, the real reason was to carve the assets away from councils, many of whom have been unable or unwilling to impose water charges and or do the investment needed Mm -hmm. to improve quality and make sure there are enough houses. The reason they've done that is because, A, they don't want to take on the debt that you need to do to invest in all of this water. Apparently, there's at least $150 billion worth of investment Mm. needed over Mm. 10 or 20 years not just in making up for past underinvestment, but also for the future um, 10, 20 years of improvements that are needed. And the council, the councils were not going to do it. Politically, financially, they either wouldn't or couldn't. 
And so the government needed to intervene to improve the water quality and to ensure that the infrastructure was being built. There are many councils who said, oh, you didn't really give us a chance, you know, um, particularly the bigger ones, Auckland, Christchurch, Wellington to an extent is... Um, is of course, Wellington should just... Anybody worrying about water in Wellington should just shut up oh, and, yeah, and say, thank you, baby Jesus, somebody else is taking the problem off us. But, but, yeah. but uh, how, how likely is this actually to happen? That is the problem. So because of the delays in getting this through, mm. we're now likely to only have one of the two pieces of legislation likely to make it happen exactly. through before the election. So the, the legislation to create these bodies means that they wouldn't actually start operating until July the 1st, 2024. Now, that's after mm. the election. Now, um, National have come out, along with the Act, and said that they would scrap three waters. And because of these delays, they're now in a position to, to yeah, do that. Yeah, this is what I do. Yeah, I'm just not sure it can happen. Yeah, I, I actually think politically the government, and I'm surprised that they didn't um, just ditch it and start again from, uh, with, with, a, with a simple um, financial engineering argument. Because even though we know that some of this is overblown, it is used as a lightning rod on the co-governance, so therefore it's used as a lightning rod to get out the grumpy Pākehā vote, which David Seymour taps into, you know, rather cleverly. Um, I, I wonder, Bernard, will, will health reform also get through? Yeah, health reform isn't quite so controversial, I think, in part because no one loves the uh, district health boards, and mm. it's clear through COVID that the uh, inability of the district health boards to work together on public health and the intervention from the top was successful um, there. Mm -hmm. And also, you've got a whole bunch of uh, nurses and doctors who've hated the DHBs with a passion for a long time. So in a way, um, the government uh, has managed to bring together all those who hate the DHBs more than they hate the government and get those changes through. So I, I think that's less of a political issue for the government at the moment than three waters, but more importantly, the problems with inflation. And one of the things I asked Grant Robertson today, and I'll put up a podcast later, which includes the uh, clips from uh, my questions and answers to Grant Robertson and I, mm -hmm. Marta, is that um, the, the real sort of untold uh, uh, story here from um, a political point of view locally is that for a lot of cities, and remember only Auckland of the major cities have been imposing water charges. And one of the real reasons for this three waters uh, arrangement is to allow all of the water authorities to start charging for water. Mm -hmm. There's good reasons for that. Uh, when you start charging for water, it's amazing how quickly find people start it. using it differently. Yeah. Yep. They start finding the leaks when, when suddenly they've got a big water bill. Oh, hang on a minute. Where's this leak? <laughs> and it's been one of the success stories of Auckland that they've managed to reduce by effectively demand management, by people saying, oh, I don't actually need that water yeah. to actually reduce yeah. the need for pipes and things. But um, uh, that means water charges, and it's incredibly controversial locally. I mean, people get kicked out as councillors or councils. Kapiti is one, for example, where they tried to get water charging in, and um, it was overturned. Tauranga, um, so controversial uh, that the government eventually had to put in commissioners, and they are looking to put water charges in there as well. Mm -hmm. And there is an element within councils going, gee... Well, why don't we just privatise it? The privatise, you know, Thames Water would uh, most definitely be... Disaster. And, and you're right. That was one of the fears that people had thrown in there because the original proposal didn't have nearly enough protections. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there, there might be a government in future who decides to, to use these things to, um, to flick through a privatisation. And remember, we're so used to these initial steps of carving assets off from public bodies, and it's seen as just another step along the road to privatisation, but the yeah. government has had to really whack in lots of uh, dikes and dams and, and barriers to make sure everyone knows that they can't be privatised. And Bernard, well, something else has been happening in New Zealand, David, because I think we, we better, you know, because we'll get tied up in Ukraine fairly shortly. Tell, tell us your view of the David Parker thing this week about tax. You've got a, you've got a very interesting view on that. Yes. Just before I do, uh, David Tripe has pointed out water charging has not been overturned in Kapiti. Uh, uh, but we are going to sell his airport. Uh, yeah. But the council that put, the, put it in got kicked out. Um, uh, 
Uh, and it's very controversial. Uh, right, so let's talk about uh, talk about taxes. Tax, big, yeah. A big speech from David Parker on Tuesday, which I recommend everyone read. I did a quite um, detailed analysis on it, uh, in which he said in his very first sentence, this is not a, a, a speech in which I argue for a wealth tax. However. And, however, everyone thought, oh, right, he's talking about wealth tax. That means he really wants to do it. And to, to be fair to the uh, critics, that is certainly something that um, Labour, apart from the Prime Minister, would like to do at some point in time. Mm -hmm. The problem is that the Prime Minister came out so hard in 2019 and said she'd never do a capital gains tax in her political lifetime. Mm -hmm. And before the 2020 election, Labour ruled out any tax increases other than the 39 cent tax uh, level and uh, also uh, ruled out a wealth tax. Now, they haven't done that for the 2023 elections, and it's quite possible that David Parker is gathering the evidence. Um, and it's quite shocking, really, that we don't have the evidence, for example, on how much people own and whether or not they're paying tax on it. Um, for example, the Household um, Economic Survey, which... Uh, which is um, done every year or so and asks people uh, about their financial situations, apparently says that the richest New Zealander only has $20 million, which is simply mm -hmm. not true. The wrong questions are asked and uh, people simply don't tell the truth. And mm -hmm. even when they're asked nicely by IRD to say what they've got, they don't have to tell the truth, in large part because New Zealand capital is capital gains are not taxed, therefore you don't have to declare what assets have risen in terms of capital gains. So um, the speech, I think, did a good job of reframing the debate and uh, was a, a nod from David Parker to Bill English uh, to say that the way that the 2010-11 tax switch uh, was engineered in a political way, mm -hmm. where the government said, right, we want to um, reduce income taxes, but we know we can't do it in a way which would blow out the deficit. So we're going to have a neutral tax change, i.e. we're going to put up GST and cut income taxes. They also but, the la but Labor could do it a little differently now because, because you know, Labor can argue that GST is regressive, reduce D G GST and put up a wealth tax. Exactly. Put up the higher end. Exactly. Um, or um, do something else that's clever that involves essentially a switch. In my view, I mm. think that's that's actually wrong. We actually need a a government with a higher share of the economy in terms Good of Good Lord. Yeah. Let's be honest Bernard, about I cannot it. agree with you about that, but anyway, we, we yeah. that, that's for, for another day's podcast well, when I we... Mean, in, in essence, the Three that's Waters... That's for the Gin Day podcast. Yeah, yeah. The, in essence, the Three Waters debate was very much <coughs> about um, effectively increasing the size of the government without declaring mm. it, because mm. the debt that's going to be taken on by these entities won't be classified as core crown Yes, debt. it's not PSBR. Yep. It's and not so, going to put up the exactly. public sector borrowing requirement. Yeah, and so the, the government can say, oh, look, the core crown as a share of the economy hasn't changed... But, of course, we have these new water authorities, which are guaranteed by the government, and it really is a fig leaf um, uh, that the uh, credit rating agencies and a few bond investors are quite happy mm -hmm. to have there because they get an extra... Uh, David will tell us how many extra basis points you get um, for a... Um, a water authority credit rating versus the mm. government's credit rating. Uh, from memory, the estimates from Treasury for uh, um, the uh, Housing New Zealand, as now known, uh, Kainga Ora, for borrowing in its own right, uh, it's going to cost basically $60 million simply to mm. have a different uh, label Entity on it, e even yeah. though the government itself is is the ultimate owner. But, but was there also a message in there from David from David to David from to Jacinda from David Parker? Uh, I think he was saying that. Hi, Prof. Had, Robert. We we just like you to stand by because we're talking about um, matters of which you have absolutely no expertise, uh, uh, Robert. I wouldn't say, <laughs> Thank you, Peter. I wouldn't say that, but I'm sure Robert is a taxpayer uh, and a homeowner, um, yeah. so this is all good. Uh, de definitely, I think. There was there is an element within the Labour Party who was still pretty grumpy about the Prime Minister's decision uh, to essentially rule out um, any sort of wealth tax, really, or capital gains tax in her political lifetime. And in a way, it's it's set a clock on her own leadership, which means that 
there is a higher possibility she will go before the next election, in part because of that promise, because to reverse that promise would be quite a sensational thing to do. Mm. And I think uh, Grant Robertson, I know because I've asked him the question in public, Grant Robertson has specifically not made the same commitment, i.e. Uh, I'm not ruling out a capital gains tax in my political lifetime. So would Jacinda Le- leads to run the global world government with Robert Patman as her as her uh, oh, bag carrier? Uh, um, no, it'd be the other way around, wouldn't it? Uh, no. Um, oddly. Uh, yeah. So uh, that's the grand conspiracy, and there is some very um, uh, big comment threads on Reddit, which, which say essentially that. Uh, I'm not sure of that, um, but I, I think there is a non-negligible chance that uh, she stands aside for Grant Robertson to have a crack, particularly mm. next year if they're still behind in the polls. And they are behind in the polls. And this is one of the things about Three Waters. When it was announced, Labour were 10, 20 points ahead of National in the polls. Um, now they're not. And Exactly. Three, three... No, it's, and it's become a very divisive issue. And those guys are, are very good at pushing hot-button issues or hot-tap issues in this case. Yeah, and it's been mm. uh, thrown into a grab bag of complaints against the government. And... It has an extra pungency and uh, punch uh, because of the co-governance accusations, particularly now, in provincial New Zealand. Can I also point out that I've managed to, we've managed to talk about Three Waters for nearly 35 minutes without me making the fantastic uh, Samuel Goldwyn joke about we've passed a lot of water since then. <laughs> all the, all the, yeah, yeah. Anyway, it's, shall it's we? Let's Shall we move Russia. on? Shall we? Yeah, let's go to Russia. Well, or yeah. Ukraine. I, yeah, I, I yeah. don't think I've, I mean yeah. the Ukraine situation is much easier to solve than three waters. No, it's not. So, can I ask a question of Robert to draw, draw him into this debate? Um, yep. So, Robert, I, it was very interesting. To, I, in my my excellent piece last week, we hugely, you know, hugely read, massively supported piece for spinoff. I talked about us already being in there; that we were already deeply enmeshed. The West is deeply enmeshed. I feel mm. that particularly today with the. $35 billion that Biden has offered uh, to Ukraine for both armaments and other things, but also this rather extraordinary, florid, um, shrieking almost, uh, certainly um, uh, uh, rather zealous speech from Lynn Truss. Who yes, it's very, very interesting, the speech from Liz Truss, because um, this is, you know, in a sense, particularly ironic, given that she's a member of a government uh, that was soft on Putin until mm. the Ukraine crisis blew up, whereas they've done a complete U-turn. Yep, and the other interesting thing here is, if you look at Liz Truss's speech, there was three big themes in it. Um, one was the need uh, for military strength amongst uh, the liberal democracies, and the other, second theme was economic security. The third theme was the need for tightening global alliances amongst liberal democracies. Yes, yes, now, I putting thought that aside was when, that you've Britain, just, when you've just broken one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Britain, putting aside that the UK fulfilled um, um, Putin's fantasy of Britain leaving the EU, um, what I found interesting is that Liz Truss is actually a Remainer. And what, now she's foreign secretary, she started putting a lot of emphasis on Britain deepening it's international alliances. So this is there's some there's, a, there's an internal politics aspect to this interesting oh, yes. speech. Oh yes, there is. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, uh, I think watch this space regards the U- the UK and EU over the next five years. But um, yeah, I think it, to be fair, I, I think the Johnson government, although it may have sent all the wrong messages to Putin, led Putin to conclude that Britain was on its knees in Putin's. Uh, the former Russian ambassador's words to Britain and that liberalism had failed, according to Mm. uh, Putin last year, or was it three years ago? Yeah, three years ago. Um, And Britain played its part in contributing to that impression. It does seem uh, to be now really pushing uh, hard or pushing back against uh, Putin's invasion. Robert, may I ask you to address two aspects of what she said, which I find both extraordinary, important. Well, one of them is very important and may not happen. And the other one is, I think, problematic. So one of them was the idea that Russia must, the end of end result of this is it must be pushed right out of the Donbass. It cannot have anything. I'm not sure, I can't remember whether she talked about Crimea, but this effectively we're talking about certainly Russia having to pull out of Donetsk and, and Luhansk uh, and, and conceivably, I imagine, being being compelled to pull out of Crimea. That, that to be seen, to, there was a very good thing I saw in the FT today that, to, to be seen to 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 lose this, Putin has to be seen to lose it, and therefore lose 
those uh, territories. Um, the other one that concerned me quite a lot when I heard it was this idea, her idea that the German attempts, particularly through Schroeder, of course, but the German attempts to create a partnership with Russia through economic codependence uh, had failed. And, and yet that has to be, you know, it, it, it's, it's failed because of a particularly difficult Russian leader. It doesn't necessarily mean mm. that it is, uh, has failed as a principle. And actually, Pat Clark's making a very good point, because also you have to think about China, because I, I rather old-fashionedly still think we need to have dialogue with China. But what do you think about those two aspects, please? I think the first point that you made uh, about Putin must be defeated reflects, I think, the changing dynamics of the war. There's, mm. the, the, I think there's, there was genuine uh, astonishment at just how brutal the Russian army has been in uh, Ukraine, and that led to the realisation that any part of Ukraine under Putin's leadership may well suffer unacceptable human rights abuses. Mm. Uh, the second thing is, is that the Ukrainian army has exceeded all expectations. Uh, when I say all expectations, uh, expectations of the United States and many Western countries. And the third point, which complements that, is the c growing conviction that giving heavy weapons and arms to uh, Ukraine will be, uh, those weapons will be uh, very competently used mm. to good effect. Um, and, and I think the other thing here is, so I think what we've seen is the changing dynamics of the war and a scaling up of Western ambitions. It was very striking to me, the conference in Rammstein, mm -hmm. Germany, um, which, uh, you know, we, we recently had General Austin, the U UK, uh, US uh, Secretary of Defense, and also Anthony Blinken, the US Secretary of State. They visited uh, President Zelensky in Kiev, and then they went on to this conference, which was attended by 40 countries in Rammstein, Germany. What was extraordinary to me, and it sort of reinforces your point, which we was also articulated in Liz Truss's speech, is that both um, Austin and Blinken now are firmly of the view that Putin can be comprehensively defeated. Yeah, yeah no, it's remarkable. Winning. I was listening to, there's a very good podcast, if anybody wants it, which is uh, a new, irritatingly, it's very good, a new Andrew Neil podcast from Tortoise, which, and David Petraeus, the former head of US, US military, was saying this as well. But, uh, but Robert, uh, we, we're deeply in there now. You've got the Germans sending mm. in anti-aircraft, heavy anti-aircraft weapons. You've got Putin starting to attack the various, uh, uh, you know, place, uh, railway interchanges and so on where, where those weapons may well come, be brought in from Poland or elsewhere. We're deeply involved, deeply enmeshed. I mean, this is, this is, there's no coming back from this now. No, but uh, there's, there's, from Mr. Putin's view, there's also been a lot of mysterious explosions on the Russian side of the border of the Ukraine in the last week, which were carefully targeted at strategic locations. Mm. And um, clearly the Ukrainians have very good intelligence, but I think they're also, their intelligence is being supplemented by the United States and NATO. And yeah. um, well, this is a message clearly to Putin that yeah. you started this and it's going to have consequences for you that you probably didn't imagine. Yeah. And it, speaking of speaking of suspicious explosions, um, you may you and I haven't discussed this, but you, you, um, I may be the, one of the only people on this on this uh, call now to have actually gone to Tiraspol and the Transdenest visited Tiraspol and the Transdenestrian Republic, which is one of the weirdest places I've ever been. Where there were two explosions this week, one of us appeared to be an RPG attack, probably self-inflicted by the security services themselves on one of their buildings in Tiraspol, and another one on a on a uh, couple of radio masts nearby and they seem to me to be evidently uh, false flag yeah. incidents but one of the things about about uh, Transdenestra and Tiraspol which a, a, an irritatingly a colleague of mine described it much better than I did as the Jurassic Park of communism um, you know they still have Lenin statues they've got uh, you know tanks on plinths and everything like that um, but it also when I was there it was the base of the Russian 6th army uh, run, run by General Lebed who you might remember mm. became the governor of Siberia and died in a very suspicious helicopter, um, accident, helicopter yeah. accident. Um, but it also had the largest arms dump in the world. Interesting. Yeah. So there's a there's a few little things in, in um, there was a, there's another that we might want thing, to know about. Peter, that I think many people missed this week, which was fascinating to me, is that Mr. Putin and Mr. Lavrov again 
rattled their nuclear saber. Mm. Mr. Putin said there was any addition. If, if the West get too involved, then you know you might have to consider all sorts of new weapons, uh, well, not new weapons, but weapons of mass destruction, so to speak, and uh, certainly a threat or hint to use nuclear weapons. Mm. But the Chinese responded quite immediately, almost immediately, by saying they're under no circumstance could the conflicts in Ukraine um, be assisted by the use of nuclear weapons, yeah. which draws attention to the fact that Mr. Putin will lose the support of China if he uses nuclear weapons. Secondly, in 2013, uh, China, which has a very good relation, had a very good relationship with Ukraine up to the mm. point of invasion, had given a, an undertaking that they would support Ukraine in the event that this non-nuclear Ukraine was attacked. They haven't quite delivered on that pledge. But what is interesting is that China has a no use first. No, Absolutely. No, no first use. Whereas Russia does not anymore. The weapons, yeah. And yeah. Um, I, I think that, that I, I do think that both Lavrov and Putin are basically bluffing when they keep threatening to use nuclear mm -hmm. weapons. It's a very interesting they, dilemma. They can't afford to lose China. One one of the it's uh, no, not to, to to avoid some cliches, but then just dive into one. Um, one of the dogs that hasn't barked is that uh, is China supplying um, weapons and material to Russia. Remember, you know, maybe a month ago, six weeks ago, there was this idea that they would they were, well they had been mm. asked. That China has so far, it would appear, um, been extraordinarily cautious in yeah. its. In, in you know in any we would know, we would know if there were weapons shipments currently coming across from China and that appears not to be the case. No, um, uh, American officials, national security officials, anticipated this, but uh, all the recent reports, so you're quite right, Peter, suggest um, that the Americans are satisfied that the Chinese are not militarily supporting um, uh, the, the 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 Russians in this invasion. Uh, I wondered, um, Robert, about the big news this week around gas supplies, Russia cutting off its gas supplies to Poland and Bulgaria, and uh, signs from Germany that its long reluctance to send uh, heavy weapons to Ukraine is maybe um, uh, being weakened a bit. Whether that gas move has... Uh, strengthen the resolve of Europe and maybe even Germany to push back harder? Very interesting because some commentators in Moscow uh, interpreted it, the gesture of cutting off uh, um, gas to Poland um, uh, and the other Eastern European country who escapes me at the moment um, uh, as a sign that it may be a sort of implicit or veiled threat to Germany. Um, the two, these two countries in question have refused to pay in rubles, but my understanding is Germany also has point blank refused to pay in rubles. Yeah, and the and, European Union has yeah. recommended again that all EU members should not pay in rubles. And there's a couple of uh, uh, those at the edges, Slovakia, I think, and Hungary, who have started to pay in rubles, which is a bit... Hungary has. Yeah. Uh, the Hungary's broken ranks, but... Um, the Hungarian leader, um, uh, he, he basically has been neutral and is a great Putin supporter, of course. So he's been neutral on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, but interestingly, the, um, yeah, the EU leadership has suggested that those paying in rubles would actually be contravening the EU sanctions regime, mm -hmm. and they may have to be disciplined. So because they're not so much they're not so much actually literally paying in new, new, new rubles, but they're doing a transfer through a Russian bank, right? They I put in so, they yeah. put in euros and and rubles pop out. Uh, yeah, I mean the, the, the EU leadership seems convinced yeah. it, it doesn't sit comfortably with the sanctions regime. I so just, that, that's interesting. I just wondered, Robert, if we could um, um, shift uh, via this discussion about China to yeah. what's happened in the last week or two uh, in. Uh, our region's relations with mm. China, uh, and in particular the uh, apparent agreement uh, between the Solomons and China about um, security, which America this week actually apparently refused to rule out its own military action to somehow stop this from happening. And the Australians have been rattling their, uh, yep. their particular boomerang-shaped sabres for quite a while. I, I just wonder 
where this Jesus, is a boomerang shaped saver could be rather painful, oh, I think, I when know, it came yeah, back at you. Yeah, but it, it wouldn't surprise me if they have such a weapon. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Sorry. So, Robert, is this, um, is this starting to get a bit ugly? Well, it's interesting that I think the Americans were a bit affronted by the fact that uh, Dr. Kirk Campbell, um, who's the national security advisor on the Indo-Pacific, a person of enormous expertise, well known to this country, um, Dr. Campbell's visit was flagged well in advance. And yet, nevertheless, uh, the, the Solomon Islands, led by Mr. Um, Sogafar, Sogavari, um, he nevertheless pushed ahead, or the Chinese pushed ahead with their deal. This is the second security arrangement. They've already got a security arrangement, by the way, with Australia. Um, and it, the visit went ahead nevertheless, but I think the Americans would have liked the the um, Solomon Islands to have the courtesy at least hearing them out before they you know, initialed the agreement with the China, which didn't happen. But I think the Americans saw this as a chance, nevertheless, to maybe indicate, because um, what we know about the agreement is quite vague between uh, China, uh, China and the Solomon Islands, it certainly has some provisions about China being able to provide uh, some sort of uh, police assistance in the event of unrest and training for uh, police officials in the Solomon Islands. Um, but uh, I, I think the Americans saw it as an opportunity at least to make it quite clear in a face-to-face -face conversation uh, that there were certain red lines as far as they were concerned. And um, uh, to be fair, the Prime Minister of the Solomon Islands has said all along that this security arrangement with China was not inconsistent with the security arrangement they already have with Australia. And by the way, both Australian and New Zealand military personnel have been involved in mm -hmm. Solomon Islands in the last two years yeah. in trying to deal with unrest there and, and, and quelling violence. So um, yeah, the other way of looking at this, I know the, I, I think, as you quite rightly say, um, all the governments, the three governments named, the Australians, uh, New Zealand and the United States are all unhappy about this because, after all, the Pacific Islands area has largely been, they've largely had a monopoly on it the last 60 years. Mm. And um, um, the thing to note here is that you could argue the Solomons Island um, is acting like many small states do. They plug into and take advantage of geopolitical rivalry when it occurs. And from Mr. Sogavari's point of view, he may be able to maximise, by signing this agreement, from his point of view, it's probably better to have two security agreements than one. Yes. Um, because it maximises support for a micro state. Of course, the other side of that coin is it does worry New Zealand, Australia and the US because there is such an imbalance in the relationship in power, in power yeah. terms. Yeah, it also... Tiny state dealing with superpower, there may be the suspicion that the Solomon Island uh, Prime Minister may be in over his head, so to speak. Mm. And that while he may have good intentions, they may believe that it will be China that's calling the shots in this agreement. Do you think but there's Robert, also a pretty, you, just sorry, but there's a critical domestic aspect too, isn't it? That, that it's Chinatown that always gets hit in yeah. these in these riots there, and and also I, I think you know as we've maybe said before, so you certainly know, is that China thinks twenty years ahead. It doesn't think eighteen months ahead and five years ahead. Yeah, that's true, and I, I think that China is determined to have a presence. Uh, the interesting thing is, though, what sort of steps would America take if it believed that China's military presence was exceeding what it believes is acceptable mm. in the Pacific Island? Well, one step it could take, and I think the Americans have hinted at this, is to start supporting economically and militarily. And remember, America didn't have an ambassador in the Solomon Islands mm. for about 30 years or close to 30 years. And they're rectifying that now. So they are playing catch-up at one level. And they've also, in uh, Dr. Campbell's visit uh, to the Solomon Islands, he made it quite clear that America was stepping up to try to help, uh, do much more to help the Solomon Islands economically. So in a sense, uh, Mr. Sogavari may be very pleased by <laughs> this robust response from America because it may be maximising the sort of assistance that he's getting. I mean, in short, um, uh, you know, a small state like uh, the Solomon Islands, if it indicates, if, if, it, if there are more than one show in town, why not take advantage of it? And that's probably the, the, the logic behind it. I just wonder, though, whether um, Australia, America have 
overplayed this supposed risk that the Chinese Navy would be stationed there and therefore able to control the trade routes to Australia and New Zealand. Is that is that a real prospect? Uh, I, I wouldn't rule it out. I mean, I think, you know, they do think long term. And yeah. I think China does see itself um, in the long term as at least being equal to the United States and possibly overtaking it. I mean, we are talking about a reasonably successful economy. China's, mm. you know, a staggering economic growth in the last few decades. Whether it can sustain that is another matter. But unlike Russia, which is a wannabe great power, I mean, <laughs> China is the real deal economically. Yeah. Uh, whereas Russia's it's, only got it's, an economy. Yeah. About, I mean, yeah. presumably this is this is America and China. Well, that's all in a, in a waking up to what happened in the Spratleys and the Nine Dash Line. Yeah and the ability to take an atoll and turn it into something quite substantial if you choose I think to. the big worry is that because China's an authoritarian power, it will use the Solomon Islands as a, a potential base, mm -hmm. I don't mean a military base, as a base for influence operations in the region. And mm -hmm. the other thing is it, it quite clearly, uh, this agreement that the Solomon Islands has signed with China quite clearly contravenes the understanding amongst all members of the Pacific Forum which Australia and New Zealand part of as well, which is that in the Pacific Islands, if there are security concerns, those problems should be addressed internally within the Pacific Island Forum group. And of course, you know, I think it was the Prime Minister said that she was concerned that the Solomon Islands leadership had tried to deal with a perceived security problem by going outside the region to get assistance with that problem within the region. So, you know, I, I mean, it, it, we have looked at this virology through the lens of um, Australia, New Zealand and the United States, but what it does have implications for the other members of the Pacific Islands Forum as well. So yeah. it's a potential and, and, regional issue. Yeah, and um, in a way, uh, we're paying the price now for being cheapskates for a couple of decades. And I recall being in Vanuatu, actually, in the week when... Uh, uh, Tony Abbott's new government decided to slash um, AusAid's uh, d diplomatic spending into mm. the Pacific and the sense of uh, shock and um, uh, disgust, actually, <laughs> amongst the Pacific was, mm. was, mm. was justified. Uh, thank you, Robert, on the international stuff. I wondered if you're you. able to stay on for another five minutes or so. We have a few questions from our audience, and please do throw your questions either into the Q&A or into the chat. And, Bernard, I have a question to ask our audience, too. May I ask that just so that they can think about it? Go for it. Which is, um, I'm going to be doing this from the UK shortly, would anybody mind, or would you mind, if I move, if Bernard and I moved the timing of this recording perhaps a little later in the day? Just let me know. Otherwise, I'll be sitting here in my jammies in England, or in, not here in my jammies. I'll be sitting there in my jammies. Yes, Go ahead, Bernard, with be, my Horlicks. It could be a very long, long period of jet yeah. yeah. um, I, I would definitely, you know, if, if a little later would work, that might be good, but carry on. Cool. So I wanted to answer a couple of questions. There's uh, a couple in here, one from Jason C and another one from Steve in the Q&A. Jason asks about Australian inflation numbers and how this week, and it's a good point from Jason, this is the big news out of Australia, their inflation ramped up to not quite the same level as ours. Um, they were in the 5%-ish or so mark. We've obviously got up to 6.9%. But um, it certainly has um, got everyone talking about the Reserve Bank in Australia likely to increase interest rates for the first time next week. And now the same old stuff is happening over there in Australia where the housing markets and the real estate agents are going, oh, my God, how can we handle higher interest rates? They have only uh, the, the Australians have only just really finished their money printing. We finished ours in July last year. And uh, the big news to watch next week, everyone on the uh, interest rate front, uh, is the US Federal Reserve on Thursday morning our time expected to put up their the Fed's funds rate by 50 basis points. And one of the reasons we've seen the US dollar had a 20-year high this, this week against the yen, a five-year high against the euro, and, uh, and actually a two-year high against the New Zealand dollar, is uh, that financial markets now expect 100... 50 basis points, so 1.5% uh, 
percentage points of increase wow. in their Fed funds rate in three months. But so we've that, also seen a very sharp fall in U.S. growth this week, Bernard. You know, exactly. Surprising it's, it's a very, it's a big, it's a big dilemma. Yeah, and and the point I was making in today's dawn <laughs> chorus about the risk of a uh, Federal Reserve monetary policy mistake, i.e., where it tightens too quickly and effectively drives an economy which was already headed for recession into a deeper recession, a pro-cyclical monetary policy hike, um, th those risks are rising. And the implication for us is that by midway through next year, later next year, there is a real chance that our mortgage rates are falling just as a national party uh, government is quite uh, possible, given the polls at the moment. So thank you, Jason, for... Um, asking the question about the Australian inflation, which I... I always love moral hazard, Bernard, so please oh, explain yes. what it explain what it is. And it, and it is not just me seeing me in my jammies from London. No, hazardous... That's a very different kind immoral, of hazard. Yes, but no, moral hazard's a very special thing in which people who are taking risks on their own behalf are doing so knowing or suspecting that if something goes wrong, someone else will bail them out, in particular a government. So essentially, people are taking risks that are bigger than they should, and the costs of it are landing on the taxpayer at large. So you often hear this phrase, privatising the profits and mm. socialising the losses. Now, the reason I raised this this week is that the government came out with its latest climate adaptation plan draft. Uh, this, frankly, should have been out two or three years ago. It essentially addresses these issues of who pays when we have to move people back from the coast or move them back from a floodplain. Uh, Westport is the obvious example right now, and it's a really curly one. You know, a lot of people put a lot of their money their, and their whole investment futures are stuck in their house, mm. and the banks obviously have lent money to that house, and the insurers have insurance against that house. And at some point, if that house is... Uh, in danger because of uh, climate change, then someone's going to have to take a loss. Is it the owner? Is it the bank? Uh, at the moment, it's the insurer a bit. And at some point, everyone's going to say, actually, I can't insure this anymore. Or the bank will say, I can't lend against this anymore. And you're stuck with a stranded asset of sorts. So let's say you're someone in Westport, you own a house, you've just repaired it twice in the last year after it's been flooded out. And you decide, oh, I've had enough of this, I'm going to sell it. So you put the sign up, and everyone says, yeah, nice house, love to live in it. It's recently renovated. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but then they go to the bank and say, oh, I'd love to buy this house. And the bank says, no, nope, can't get insured, can't buy it. And effectively, that's a worthless asset. And so the homeowner says to people, well, this was an act of God. I had no idea about this climate change thing. And uh, not my fault. And the fact that Are you going on a bit here? No, no, I, I think this is worth saying yeah. okay. that a lot of people are essentially assuming that the government, either councils or the government, and of course councils don't want to be stuck with it, and neither does the government. It's a, it's a game of pass the parcel where no one wants to be holding that grenade when it goes off. And uh, the government should be jumping in there and saying, right, now the clock starts ticking. Now you cannot claim plausible deniability about not knowing about mm. climate change when mm. you buy that house or you insure that house or you lend to that house. And those people who think that they can get away with um, at, after the next storm when the seawall is broken say, well, um, uh, you've got to fix that seawall or, or else my house is in danger. And that's an act of God and you should pay for it. And there are plenty of examples of that. For example, uh, in Island Bay several years ago, the seawall there was wrecked mm. because of a storm and the locals said, uh, well, the council needs to pay to fix it. And the council said, yeah, climate change, uh, shouldn't we just move you back a bit? And of course the locals, uh, there was outrage, claims about um, uh, climate change being not a real thing and uh, someone else should pay for it. Well, I was going to say, let's let's wait until the, um, until the Oriental Bay uh, wall collapses, then, then we'll know who's got political power in Wellington. Ah, well, yes, and Eastbourne's another one. Um, and uh, Steve has asked the question, this is where the question comes from, Steve has asked about the moral hazard issue, and he points to particularly some issues around Thames Coromandel. When I was at Newsroom, I worked with um, Eloise Gibson and Cassandra Mason, 
who reported and wrote a fantastic series about how many property developers in Thames Coromandel, uh, in particular the place on the uh, open sea coast where all the New Year's Eve parties are, uh, take place, and I can't remember its name right now, uh, which have these uh, estuaries and beaches, which of course, you know, every real estate agent and owner wants to live on the beach. But of course, uh, with climate change, probably not such a good idea, particularly if you're starting to build projects with uh, underground garages and mm, sorts mm. of things. And you mean underwater garages now? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, and the council, future underwater garage, yeah, yeah. garages. And the council was effectively directed uh, by uh, the National Policy Statement and the RMA to not allow these projects to go through. But because everyone was looking at each other saying, it's your, your, you're the one who's supposed to tell them not to do it. And, no, no, it's you. And before you know it, the development's in there. And once it's in there, then someone has to pay when it goes wrong. And at the moment, the councils are particularly nervous about being stuck as the um, effectively the guarantor of last resort. <laughs> and when someone says, oh, well, you, you gave it a certificate of compliance, you approved the building consent, and you didn't object when I put through the resource consent, it's your fault. You can pay the $100 million to repair this, this apartment complex. And uh, that is actually one of the reasons why a lot of councils uh, are being very reluctant to agree to projects. Well, let's, let's just ask, this is a very interesting question. Just let's, since you've since you've made poor old Robert sit there and listen to your fucking diatribe, Bernard. Well, climate um, change, which is a huge bit, exactly. So, but, but, issue but, too, but anyway. exactly, exactly. That's what I'm going to bring out here. So, uh, moral hazard is a very interesting question. We all know the direction of this going now. The IPCC stuff is you know very well based. Then and then there's various tipping points and everything. What 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 do you think about this? You know, I mean, you're a you're a professor of uh, international philosophy at Otago University. Sexual um, relations. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sexual relations. Did you say? Right. No. International relations. Oh, good. I, thought you, a, I thought you had. It. Yeah, exactly. Um, what do you think about this moral hazard question? In as much as it is going to affect country to country relationships as well, surely. Yes. I mean it. it... It, yeah, that's absolutely true, and um, and we, you know, you have to see that it's probably played a role in preventing any diplomatic. Well, let's face it, we first knew about the reality of climate change, although it was disputed for about a decade afterwards in 1988, mm. and yet here we are in 2022, and we still haven't really, um, you know, got uh, uh, how should I put it. Uh, a really workable plan to meet the sort of targets that have been identified at Glasgow, for example. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, I think, you know, the moral ha hazard component is there. The other aspect to this, of course, is that many countries, you know, it, 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 they always take the, well, many countries, some countries believe they're too small to make too much mm -hmm. difference to the outcome. And, you know, and, dip, and diplomats, I think um, some of them tend to work incrementally and they may have, un you mentioned the tipping point principle, mm -hmm. Peter, and I think sometimes there's been a bit of a mismatch between, and I don't mean this in a, a rude way, but between the traditional diplomatic training or the training that many diplomats have and the scientific problem, the challenging. This is not a graduated problem as far as we can tell. If we do not seriously cut back uh, on the level of emissions, mm. then we could enter a period within the next 10 years, most people seem to predict, where we could reach a tipping point and we could have systemic climate change. And, and the tragedy, in a way, is that the Ukraine war, uh, which um, has meant that energy prices have jumped and forced politicians in the United States and here even to reduce their uh, taxes yeah. on energy and take the pressure off uh, moving away from coal and oil and gas, if only, simply because of the intense uh, political pain mm. from higher prices, has meant that, uh, for example, the US um, 
drive t towards various climate policies effectively has been stopped dead. Stop, yeah, yeah. I think it's very interesting, Robert, the, and, and two people have pointed out that, you know, this is a really interesting issue of international moral hazard. So I, I expect to see a new paper from you with um, a credit to Bernard and me for asking <laughs> you about moral hazard. Now, you might want to stay I'll on. never leave you out. You might want to stay on for our excellent skateboarding dogs or in this, yes. this skateboarding dolphin story. But I want this two skateboarding dolphin story. One is... There's a guy called uh, Vladimir Solovyov, who is an incredible self-regarding uh, bloviator uh, journalist pro-Putin, who was supposedly the sub subject of what Putin describes as a CIA and Western intelligence attempt to assassinate him. They and the FSB sent video, did you know, video of their uh, uh, of arresting some alleged Ukrainian uh, neo-Nazis uh, off to kill um, Solovyov, but unfortunately, they within the um, video they showed three games of the sims that were in their packages and left out on a bed in the hotel where they are on the, in the house where they were uh, and also a sign a, a a signed document which was kind of their manif manifesto and the signature with which they signed it said um in russian uh, eligible signature <laughs> So what the, the assumption is that they were actually meant to be SIM cards, not SIMs games, uh, and that this is all um, rather made up. There, there were also uh, fresh packages of T-shirts with swastikas on them, and, I mean, you couldn't make it up. Um, now, the other absolutely marvellous story is the Russian dolphins, which are trained to uh, combat human um, frogmen, um, which have been found or detected on um, satellite footage from uh, satellite uh, imagery from Sebastopol. Now, what's there's two two fabulous aspects of this. Apart from the fact that they're bottlenose dolphins, they were they were fl uh, apparently flown in by helicopter and parachuted into the into the sea there, um, and they uh, were originally stolen from the Ukrainian uh, base in Sebastopol and taken over by the Russians, who've been doing this kind of marine mammal work for some years. And you may remember double agent dolphins. Yes, and you may actually remember a fabulous one, which was a beluga whale found in Norway with a kind of um, uh, iPhone, iPhone strap around its tummy, um, which appeared to have escaped from one of the Russian programs uh, up north. Um, because the blue-nosed dolphins are too, are too um, don't have enough, enough fat to survive, but they so they use blue, no, but they use uh, belugas up in the north and Murmansk and seals apparently to do this. Not Navy seals, but real seals. Um, so I thought that was an absolutely fabulous story. Um, and to highlight it, I went to a uh, just a, a slight digression. I went to a um, pub in um, or a restaurant in. Invercargill the other day, which and not many people say restaurant and Invercargill in the same breath. I can tell you. How was the uh, cheese rolls? Good. Well, I did. They didn't have cheese rolls, but they did have oysters from somewhere called Bluff, which were actually oh. quite tasty. But the place was called um, uh, Buster Crab. <laughs> it's a restaurant named after Buster Crab, who was the original scuba diver. Uh, of the Royal Navy. He was a kind of British um, Jacques Cousteau. He was also the model for Ian Fleming's James Bond. Mm. And he was murdered, or would appear to have been murdered, but he went missing while inspecting the underside of a Russian ship, a Soviet ship, I think in Portsmouth, possibly. You might, you're might you nearly old enough to remember, Robert. Um, and uh, and and it was later later realised that the that the uh, Rush, somebody in the Russian, another frogman from the Russian Navy had um, had killed him. Where he was never he was never found. But never yeah, exactly. So how many wasn't segues have you got there? Beta or something? Wasn't what? he decapitated or something? I don't think we. I think somebody may have said that he was decapitated, but I don't think his body was ever found. But okay. we could do some more research on that. But may I point out that I've got bluff oysters, buster crab, dolphins, beluga whales, bust, uh, and various other things into the into the end of the um, skateboarding dog. Fantastic, yeah. Peter. Here we go. Wonderful. Thank you very much to everyone, to Peter and to Robert. It's been another uh, great hoon. I appreciate everyone attending. We'll, of course, be putting the audio of, of this as a podcast over the weekend. Thank you very much. That's Robert, you're a natural for this. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> great fun. See Thank you, you very much. See you. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye -bye. Bye -bye.